the rest of us, as Tad prayed, will be continuing in John today. You can turn in your Bibles to John chapter 12. If you're new with us, my name is Chuck, and it's my uh, privilege to get to share with you today from God's Word. Our habit is to simply open the Bible to the next passage that we're in, in the book we're going through, and to study it together, discern what it means, and then seek to apply it to our lives this week. We started our newest series in the book of John last week, looking at the incredible story of Lazarus. In case you weren't here, here's essentially what happened. Jesus had three friends from one family, two sisters and a brother. The brother grew ill and died. Jesus, four days later, traveled to see him, looked at the grief upon the family, and brought back the brother to life. Incredible. It's the most dramatic of all the miracles in the book of John. Jesus did that to make a particular point about himself. In John chapter 11, verse 25, it says, Jesus said to her, this is one of those two sisters, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Jesus, in other words, is saying, I am the one, the only one, who has command over life and command over death. You see, Jesus is in charge of our lives, our physical lives and our spiritual lives. And because He is the source of life, because He's the substance of life itself, then we must look to Him if we would have life. So in that way, bringing Lazarus back from the dead is a living parable of Jesus showing just like He could bring Lazarus back physically, He can bring you back spiritually. We are all dead spiritually apart from God, but Jesus gave his life that we might have life. That was John chapter 11. Maybe you're wondering why I didn't do it that quickly last time. Today we're in John chapter 12. Cicely is going to come read for us. If you don't have a Bible underneath the chair in front of you, there are Copies of the Bible, and on page 524 is where we'll be in those Bibles. Cicely, would you read? John 12, 1 through 11. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at a, t- at a table. Uh, Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment, made from pure nard, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume, but Judas Iscariot, one of, the, one of his disciples, he who was to, about to betray him, said, why was the ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. 
Thank you. <laughs> the two or three sitting by Cicely appreciated her reading. <laughs> That's great. Every uh, story that's in the Gospel of John is there obviously for a reason. Today I thought we'd get to the significance of this story by looking at the setting and the characters and considering both of those closely, which will lead us to the significance. So first the setting. This uh, event took place apparently in the home of Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. They lived in a town called Bethany, which was a little less than two miles outside the city of Jerusalem. Remember that at this point in the Gospel of John, there is outright hostility and opposition towards Jesus. The religious leaders of the day are no longer trying to drum up sort of mob violence. Instead, they have made a formal decision that they would want to see Jesus executed. And so they're working actively toward that end. Jesus, knowing that that's what was going to happen, still is going to travel to the city of Jerusalem. We'll talk about why in a minute. But Jesus was seen as a big enough threat to their own power and a big enough hostility or opposition to their understanding of Judaism that they wanted him killed. Verse 1 gives us the time frame. And that's significant in this story. It says that this was six days before Passover. Every year, the Jews would travel from wherever they lived to the city of Jerusalem for the annual feast, annual remembrance of Passover. Imagine thousands and thousands and thousands of people traveling in big caravans to the city of Jerusalem. Each family would have had a lamb with them. This is incredible detail to the story that Jesus, as he's about to enter Jerusalem to celebrate Passover, does so knowing that all those little lambs being taken by the families were pointing forward to him, that he would be the true lamb who in less than a week's time would be offered in Jerusalem to die. If this were a movie, this is the point in the movie in which the ominous music would begin in, in the background because this is the entrance of real danger for Jesus. Now these three siblings obviously knew Jesus would be going to Jerusalem. And so they set out to have him over. But this wasn't just another meal. You might notice there in the passage that it says it was a meal for Jesus. John's careful to tell us that this was a banquet in Jesus' honor. As a quick aside, I want to encourage us as a church to never underestimate the importance of hosting people. It might sound like a silly thing to say, but the Bible's full of both implicit modeling of the significance of this, like in this story, and explicit teaching towards the end, that we would be hospitable people. You see, many of the most important conversations you and I will ever have happen at a dinner table. Mary and Martha and Lazarus set out to have this banquet to honor Jesus. I wonder whether 
you have a tiny little table in a tiny little apartment or a big home in a big table. When was the last time somebody sat there with you for the express purpose of you investing in them? This should be something as Christians that we do frequently where members of our church are thoughtfully invited to our home to share meal. And even more so that at times we would be thinking through believers inviting unbelievers to our table that they would eat the food that God's provided for us and that we would have opportunity to continue building relationships with them. If you're not doing this, you're missing one of the greatest privileges of life. It doesn't matter so much whether you serve hot dogs or some of the great food that Roger makes for us each week. But before you leave today, I want to encourage you to open your calendar, look ahead, and invite someone over. Take the cue from this family who clearly made it a habit to invest in people at the table. At the table. So that's the setting. This is a, a private meal at home with friends in the shadow of Jerusalem just days before Jesus would be arrested and crucified. Now let's consider the characters together. There's a lot of them, so we'll spend a little bit longer here. First, let's look at Martha. Martha only gets a mild nod in this story. Look at verse 2. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served. This story clearly is not about Martha. She only gets two words. But what tremendous two words these are. Martha served. We know from other passages in the Bible that this was Martha's habit. Apparently, she found joy in serving. She was good at it. It's where she naturally gravitated. Now, it seems that at times she got a little grumpy if others weren't helping. But that's not to say that Martha, Mary's, uh, Martha's serving was a bad thing. It is not. Service is good. This seems to be her frequent contribution. Very likely she set the table, picked out the food at the market, cleaned the house, prepped the meal, served to the people seated. If you knew her, you likely would have known her as a woman of great service. If you wanted to find Martha, particularly in anything important important that was happening, you just needed to look behind the scenes because she was there. She was there gladly helping make sure all the preparations were made so that people would enjoy themselves. This is a commendable thing. This is a great trait about her. Martha was a woman of service. She was a woman of service because she was a woman of strong faith. In the previous chapter, John chapter 11, she made this confession about Jesus. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. It seems that her belief about Jesus led her into service for Jesus. May that be true for you and me. That if we get just a passing mention as people tell a story, that what would be mentioned is 
not what we wore or how much money we had or what time we arrived or how loud we were or how funny we were, but that we served. Brothers and sisters, the world is full of opportunities to serve. Yes, some of those are formal. Like right now, there is someone teaching a connection class. There are quite a few people help, helping watch kids. These are formal commitments made ahead of time that will last for weeks. Over the course of a year, a commitment was made. But there are many, many more informal opportunities to serve, like this one in a home. There are many ways we can serve each other in informal ways. Like running errands for a single mom whose kids are sick. Or going to visit a homebound member who can no longer gather with us as a church family because they're confined to a bed. Or having a college student over to do laundry and eat a home-cooked meal. There's endless opportunities for us to be about the work of serving each other. And it's through that service, in many ways, that the gospel is most loudly proclaimed. The very nature of our faith means that we will be serving. Jesus said the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Are you afraid if you say it that you'll have to do it? The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Therefore, of course, His followers would be marked by their service. Particularly to the people of God, but of course, to all, as we would have opportunity. We might be able to say it this way. If you're a follower of Jesus and you've been miserable lately, it's very likely because you have not been serving. There is tremendous joy in being used by God to do whatever it is you're good at to benefit and bless and help others. So stop complaining and start serving. You'll find it's life-giving because you'll be doing the very things that Jesus desires to do through you. That's to serve. May it be said of us, may it be said of you, that we served. To be a Christian is to be someone who serves. Now, another character in the story is Lazarus. He is a more principal part of the story. This is the same guy who in chapter 11 got brought back from the dead. Jesus and Lazarus are at the table together. Can you imagine that conversation? So, Jesus says to Lazarus, so Lazarus, how's it going? Lazarus says, you know, I'm doing really well. There is this problem of my odor, though. Can't seem to get the stench off me. Or Jesus says to Lazarus, Lazarus, how's things in Bethany? Well, they're good, but nothing like heaven, which you stole me back from. Just imagine how that went on and on and on there at the table together. But in all seriousness, this this is the recipient of the greatest miracle that had happened yet in the book. 
And now they're just seated together, enjoying each other's company. Incredible. Lazarus, understandably, had become one of Jesus' star witnesses. Down in verse 9, we read that a large crowd came to see not just Jesus, but to see Lazarus. Everybody wanted to see and hear and talk with the man who had been dead. Lazarus, of course, had nothing to boast about in those conversations. You see, he was lying in a cave, deceased. And then he suddenly woke up. That's it. He could not even unwrap himself. He had to stumble out and be helped. He was a witness to the work of Jesus because Jesus did for him what only Jesus could do. And Lazarus knew, I brought nothing to that miracle. That is so helpful for us as we think about particularly our salvation. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. Just like Lazarus, unable to do anything to bring ourselves back. Jesus called our name. The Spirit imparted life. We responded in faith. May we be witnesses to the work of Jesus. Not about how great we are and how smart we are and how great God is to have us on His team. About our contribution through our good works and that Jesus really should be rather proud that we would be one of His. No, just in utter amazement that Jesus called us out of death into life. The world is in desperate need of people like Lazarus to tell the story of what Jesus did for us. Lazarus is also the one that would reveal part of the tension in this story. Every good story has tension. The antagonist in this story, one of those, are the chief priests. Every story has tension, and that is certainly true in this one. The chief priests were supposed to be the smartest, best educated, most spiritually mature, thoughtful leaders alive. And yet they wanted Jesus dead. Apparently so great was the following Jesus had. So scared were they of losing power. So much a threat was he to their way of life that they wanted him dead. And so callous were their hearts that not only did they want Jesus dead, but did you hear who else they were contemplating killing? Lazarus, the guy who had already died once. They hated the work of God so much that they actively sought to put an end to him too. The callousness of heart is tremendous. Now the other antagonist is Judas. Judas Iscariot was one of Jesus' disciples. And when Mary took this expensive perfume and poured it out on Jesus... Judas's blood boiled, made him angry. He pretended to care for the poor. But really, 
we're told that he just wanted the money for himself. He wanted that perfume sold so that the money bag of the disciples would be bigger, which he apparently had charge over, and in which he would skim off the top for himself. Friends, Judas was a fake. He preyed on the generosity of others for himself. Seems like every couple of years this happens again. Some prominent person's ministry or some church or some 501c3 comes out that they had been having some employee who was skimming off the top. It's a tragedy. Many times when this happens, it happens among ministries and churches that were seeming to do many things in mercy kinds of ministries. Pray for your spiritual leaders here at Church on Mill, that none of us would ever fall prey to this most heinous sin. Judas loved money. And in less than a week, this love of money would lead him to betray his master. His love of money led him into evil. Friends, the love of money always leads people into evil. Money is not wrong. Even having lots of money is not wrong. But loving your money, living for your money, will mean that you have an idol that will never be satisfied and will inevitably consume you. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Now there's Mary. With Mary, we get to the beautiful part of the story. Look again with me at verse 3. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard. I think that sounds rather nasty. And anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. That's nasty too. The house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. In the first century, when you had a meal with somebody, you didn't sit at a table in a chair. The tables were low to the ground, and you would lie down and prop yourself up with one arm. There's a few cultures in the world that still eat this way. But Jesus, no doubt, would have been lying on the ground, propping up with the arm, enjoying the meal, talking with Lazarus and his disciples. They've probably finished eating when Mary comes in. Mary comes up from behind and kneels down at Jesus' feet. And she worships with an act of tremendous humility and love. I tried all week to figure out how to capture that moment in just a phrase. I couldn't pick only one. So here's several. This is costly commitment. This is extraordinary service. This is lavish devotion. This is extravagant worship. This is outrageous love. Mary was so full of gratitude for what God had done for her in raising her brother back from the dead 
But she worshipped Jesus with reckless abandon. There's a little detail in the story when Judas fights Jesus about doing this, about allowing this. He says, we should have sold that perfume for 300 denarii. You probably don't have any denarii in your purse or your pocket. So let me tell you what those were worth. A denarii was a day's wages for the average worker. A day's wages for the average worker. I struggled with math, but do you see what that's saying? That's about a year's salary. A year. Take whatever you make in a year and imagine giving all of that as an offering of worship. Who's ever heard of something like that? That's what this woman did. Not out of compulsion, not out of duty, not to be thought of a particular way, but as an expression of her devotion to Jesus. It's remarkable. It's possible that Mary was wealthy. And if so, she teaches us how to have a lot and how that lot shouldn't make up the substance of your life. It's also possible she had very, very little. And if so, this was likely her most prized possession, perhaps even an heirloom passed down from someone else. If that's the case, then she shows us how to have a little and do it well. Either way, What a great model for us, showing us that whatever we have, Jesus is better. And it's good to give in worship. I think this begs the question, what is your most prized possession? What is the thing you have that you can't imagine not having anymore? What is the thing that in part makes you you? And if so led by God, would you be willing, Christian, to give it? The New Testament makes it clear that the mark of giving in the life of a Christian isn't the tithe. It's not 10%. One of the most silly conversations I ever hear about among believers is, do you give a tenth from your net or your gross? That's gross that we would ask that. Friend, the the mark isn't 10%. 10% might be a huge sacrifice for some of us. It might be absolutely nothing for others. The benchmark of giving is what Paul said, is give as you are led. Give as your heart directs you. So the idea is as we are worshiping God, as He's the most important thing to us, we would be looking to maximize the giving, doing it as often and as frequently and as much as God would set in our hearts to do. And then being content with whatever we have left. That's what this woman did. She gave it all. Now, 
I think not only is the denarii piece different for us, strange culturally, but there's also these other details like the word anointed and this bit about wiping his feet with her hair. Let's take a moment and consider both of these culturally specific descriptions. First is anointed. Yes, when you went to a a dinner party, you went into anybody's home, your feet would be cleaned. This was done with water, not with costly perfume. So why did she anoint his feet? And why is it said that she anointed them? If you've been through your Old Testament very often, likely you're hearing the ring of royalty here. See, very likely what she was doing is saying, I recognize that you are King Jesus. I anoint not just your head, like the King of old in the Old Testament. I anoint all of you. I anoint even your feet. This is the recognition that Jesus was sent not merely as a prophet, which he was, not merely as a great moral teacher, which he was, not merely as a healer, which he was, but as the Messiah, as King, as the one sent by God to rescue God's people out of tyranny, bring them to a status of peace with God. She's anointing him because she sees that he is king. That's pretty awesome, isn't it? But what about this thing with her hair and his feet? Women in the first century didn't put down their hair in public. This is very different for us. A woman's hair was far more then than even a woman's hair is to her now. One of the great things people suffer with when they have cancer and undergo treatment is losing their hair. I have a close friend whose wife is in the middle of a severe battle with breast cancer, and she posted a picture this week of three wigs in her bathroom, simply saying the things I never thought I'd have to go through. She's younger than me, has three kids at home, very likely will not make it to this point next year. But back then, a woman's hair meant far more. A woman's hair was the essence of her beauty. It was the sign of her glory. She kept it up in public because to have it down was the thing she only would do with her husband. See, it was a symbol of her commitment, of her fidelity, of her closeness to him. The closest thing we have to that today is a wedding ring. It's a symbol to everybody else. I'm taken. And so you didn't do this. You didn't let down your hair. Now, we have a very small picture of that today. You've probably watched a movie recently you likely shouldn't have watched in which a woman took down her hair. What did that mean? It was an indicator of romance. It was a symbol that sex is near. It was an offering of availability. It was a sign of her beauty and seductiveness. So there's still a tiny 
hint of this today. But I'm not in any way meaning Mary is propositioning Jesus. No, that's not the image. The image is Mary is taking the most beautiful part of her and offering that to Jesus. It's a symbol of her closeness with Him, not in a sexual way, but in the sense that she recognizes He is the very most important person. It's a sign of her commitment to Him. Now remember, they didn't have paper towels. So, Practically speaking, she probably has thought about this moment a lot. And then in the moment, she's recognizing, I have anointed his feet, and now I've got to wipe them off with something. She lets down her hair as an act of worship, rubbing his feet, anointing them as a symbol of her devotion and commitment to him. Friends, just like her actions, there are things you will do today if you are genuinely committed to Christ that will be understood to be strange, odd, outlandish, provocative. Very likely it will not involve letting down your hair and wiping someone's feet but it will involve things that are no less odd to everyone else around us. You go to church on Sunday, that's weird. But you invite somebody into your home to live with you who's fallen on hard times. That's too much. That will be seen as strange. You privately believe in God, well, that's foolish, but whatever, do what you like. But you publicly invite other people to worship God, to come to Jesus. That's too far. You don't act out sexually outside of a heterosexual marriage. You're missing all the fun, but do what you like. But you say that no one else should act sexually except in a heterosexual marriage. That's too far. That's scandalous. Friends, Jesus is king. He demands loyalty. Your loyalty to him will be seen as strange to a culture that does not worship him. Just like Mary's devotion was strange. But she'd seen what He can do. She'd recognized His power. She'd received the benefit of Him being her God. And so guess what? She didn't care. She gladly gave a year's salary and let down her hair. What will you do to worship your King? It's remarkable that these two sisters and a brother clearly understood who Jesus was. While the chief priests had no idea. 
It's very much indicative of what happens today. Now, finally, we reach Jesus, the last character in the story. What about him could we say in this passage? That is a unique contribution to our understanding of Jesus. Well, he let her do all of that. He didn't stop her. He received her worship. He allowed a dinner to be provided in his honor. He let a woman let down her hair. He received her closeness and her devotion. Jesus only accepts what is rightly his. He reclined at the meal. He took the center of attention. Friends, our lives are not about us. As long as you seek to make your life about you, you will ensure that no one else wants much to do with you. Because we're not made for life to center around us. Life centers around Jesus. The very best life you'll ever have is a life in which you very infrequently think about yourself. And you most frequently think about Jesus and how to serve the cause of Jesus in your everyday life. That's what Mary did. That's what Martha did. That's what Lazarus did. Now, what's the significance of this story? Of all the things John could have included, why did he include this story? One of the things challenging about preaching through a long book in the Bible is we've, we've got to do it over an extended period of time. And we're going at breakneck speed, believe it or not. So there's lots and lots and lots of details we're not considering closely, which we could. But even at this fast speed, we should stop and ask, why is this story here? What unique contribution does it make to our understanding of the life and the work of Jesus? I mean, there's nothing here especially noteworthy in terms of a speech from Jesus. There's no long oratory. So why is it here? Well, it's here because it shows us that Jesus is the king worthy of anointing and worthy of worship. That is something all people of all ages ought to hear. Jesus is king. Jesus is king. And he's a king worthy of anointing and worthy of worship. Jesus is king. No one else sits on the throne. Only Jesus. Yes, don't misunderstand me. I'm aware you are pretty awesome. But you're not king. You are not queen. Jesus is king. Only Jesus rightly deserves worship. So worship him like Mary. Serve him like Martha. Recline at Him in prayer like Lazarus. Only Jesus deserves that place in our lives. 
But there's another reason why the story's here. One of the weird things preachers will do is go back and read sermons preached decades, even hundreds of years ago on the same passage to try to get out of our own cultural setting. I did that this week, and it helped me to see a detail that expresses what this story is ultimately about. See, Jesus is the king worthy of anointing and worship, but he's also the lamb who's about to be slaughtered in place of sinners. Anytime you read a narrative, one of the most important things the story writer does is he has someone speak. And speech is a point of emphasis. So what did Jesus say, in other words? Well, that's what reveals to us the prominence of the story. Jesus, when he received the worship and the anointing of Mary, met the hostility of Judas. And he responded to Judas, not by talking about his greatness as a king, but by talking about his upcoming death. See, in this time period, when you died, you didn't get carted off to a funeral home where you were embalmed and then put in a casket a week later for people to come by and look at you. No, your body was wrapped. And before it was wrapped, it was covered with things that would hopefully cover your smell. There was no embalming. They anointed you with perfume. They put dozens of pounds of spices on your body. And then they wrapped you up. Jesus, as he's being anointed, what he was thinking about is Mary doesn't know this, but in less than a week, I'm going to die. She unknowingly is preparing my body for my funeral. Jesus is the king worthy of all worship and praise. But he's also, paradoxically, the lamb who was slaughtered for sinners. If you've never heard the gospel, the gospel is the good news that we are sinners, but God is gracious. God sent himself in Christ to live the life that you and I are commanded to live, but unable, in order that he could die a sacrificial death. You see, on that cross long ago, as he hung, what was most heinous about that death was not the means of torture. No, it was that all the sin of every sinner who would ever come to know Christ was placed upon him. And that meant the full wrath of God fell upon the perfect Son of Jesus. And in the most tragic thing that has ever happened, the relationship between father and son was broken. And Jesus died all alone. And then his body was prepared for the grave. Mary didn't know it, but that's what she was preparing Jesus' body for. 
The irony here is incredible. Mary believes she's anointing the king. But she's preparing the Savior for his death. Friends, Christianity is an upside-down faith. It turns everything on its head. And that starts with our leader. Jesus didn't come for the halls of power. He wasn't born into royalty as we think of it. He didn't come for the powerful and wealthy. Jesus came for the sick. And so the gospel from its earliest days, has always been a stench to many. Because it is few of us who will recognize the foulness of our sin, the putrid nature of our humanity, and come to Him to save. But that's how the kingdom of God works. The king is also the one who offered himself Mary had great love for Jesus, but nothing like Jesus' love for her. The book of Romans puts it this way, God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by His blood, that means declared right with God. Since we have been declared right with God, based on nothing we have done, any more than Lazarus did anything to come out of the tomb, how much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God? The love of Jesus compelled Him to the cross. The one who gave Lazarus back his breath would soon breathe his last. The one who is worthy of all worship, the continual anointing as king, is the same one who gave up his life that you and I would have it. Friends, the way up in the kingdom of God is always down Humility, death to what we want, that God might be lifted up. This is how the life of a Christian works, because it's how the life of our Savior works. Jesus is the King, worthy of your worship. He's also the Lamb who was slaughtered for your sin. Will you recognize Him as both, not just today, but every moment of every day? Let's pray.